do it again. He is risen. Hallelujah. So I mentioned it in my letter this week. I want to work on call and response in sermons. I don't know how we're going to do this. I have no real skill at it yet. I'm quite nervous about it. But I have a feeling that if we can figure out how to do this, we're all going to enjoy it because it will give us a power together. That is, if we have a set of things that I can shout and you know how to respond to, and we're ever in a group anywhere, we could take over. It's kind of awesome, actually. Go march for life and let people know you're there. Or, well, there's other ways you could take advantage of this, like having a conversation a little bit. I don't want you to raise your hand, but there are ways over time that you can let me know as a group or as an individual by telling me what you want to hear. And this will involve call and response as well. So as I mentioned in my letter, amen actually means say it again. Amen means say it again. Now, I can't promise the first time you say it, that won't throw me off. But anybody wants me to repeat something, shout an amen at me. We'll see how it works, right? We only do this by testing and trying and see how it works. So, he is risen. Hallelujah. That should be one that is so easy that I just throw it out there, you hit it, and we keep going. And what I'm going to try to do is use it as like a paragraph break in the sermon. Right. So as we go for this longer sermon, you might drift and you might distract. Right. I'm going to say he is risen. And you can get back into the sermon right there because I'm going to talk about something different. All right. That's how we're going to work that one. It's, it's a paragraph break in the path through these three texts today, starting with Ezekiel chapter 37, which you really ought to know by now in terms of having heard it. If you've never had heard this story, I'm sorry. The world did not do you any favors. <laughs> this is like one of the best Old Testament stories that there is. And it's ready-made for a movie. It's absolutely ready-made for a horror flick, actually. You got this old guy, young guy, however you want to view the prophet Ezekiel. We're not going to worry about his life right now. Imagine a prophet. What's a prophet to you? He's got a staff and a, a robe, and he's walking through this valley. It's not the Grand Canyon. It's not that big, but it's craggy and deep. It's the kind of place you could hide an army or ambush an army. Only the sky is dark and there are dead brush everywhere and there's no army here. There's only dead bones. So every step he takes, there's a crunch and a crack and he's got to move away these bones and they're dry, which means they've been there a very long time. All the animals have picked all the bits of flesh off these bones. They are, they are useless, these things. The, what do you do? You're not even going to bury them. You're going to leave them there if you find them. And it's the whole valley. By the way, there are places on what's called the Ostfront, uh, post-World War II, Russia and Germany. There are places with this many bones, it is said, still on the ground today from some of the Russia-German battles in World War II. So not an unrealistic image, although, again, extreme in the vision that Ezekiel's having. And then he has God showing him this. And God says, what do you think about these bones, Ezekiel? And Ezekiel has probably read Job. <laughs> and he knows that you can't answer God's questions. It's not possible to answer God's questions. You say, you're God. You tell me. And that's what he does. And so God says, you're right. I'm going to go out of order here a little bit. I do have to tell you. And I'll tell you, this set of bones is the whole house of Israel. Now, here's where the history matters. Who's the house of Israel in Ezekiel's day? This is after David's single kingdom of Israel became two kingdoms, Israel and Judah. After Israel, the northern kingdom was swept away, 10 tribes gone forever. No one knows where they are. 
to this day. They're just uh, they're no longer people groups. They've been intermingled with wherever they were settled as slave populations. So all he had was Judah then, and Judah is in the middle of and already being exiled to Babylon because that's where Ezekiel is. Most of Ezekiel's prophecy is in Babylon to believing Jews in Babylon about how Jerusalem is still going to finish falling. That's where some of what they say, the house of Israel that says to him, did you catch that? They say our bones are dried up. They say our hope is lost. That's because all of them had had their town attacked, their country attacked. They'd been put in, not changed, but in herd caravans and shipped off to another part of the world and told to live there and deal with it. And they said, God, what'd you do to us? Especially since they had a mountain where God promised he wouldn't let this happen. God, what'd you do to us? Now, you can take that right now and put that right in your life. You have plenty of moments this week where you said, God, what did you do to me? There are plenty of things you can find on the news where you can say, God, what are you doing? The whole house of Israel says, what are you doing, God? Is it everybody? No, but it is Christians. And Christians should expect that our flesh is going to challenge God. We're not going to see what he is doing. We're going to wish we were him because we still carry Adam in us. And yet he's going to give us something far better than what we wish we could see, which is power. He's going to give us the promise of everlasting kingdom under him. And so in the language of Ezekiel again, he says, speak to these bones. Tell them that the spirit of God can put flesh on them. Hey, bones, the spirit of God can put flesh on you. Whoosh, whole valley filled with human bodies. Strong ones, an exceeding army, and yet missing something, missing a breath. And the language here gets a little, little tough. Uh, the word breath in Hebrew is the word ruach. If you wanted to write it, it would be R-U-A-C-H, ruach. This word breath also is the word wind. And it also is the word spirit. They don't have different words. For those three words, ruach, spirit, wind, breath. The trick is, in English, you often have the translation going between breath and wind and all manner of things. I think we're going to see that a little bit here. So I'll try to help uh, uh, translate backwards here a bit. Uh, starting at verse, oh, where's it going to be? Verse 9, prophesy to the ruach, prophesy, son of man, and say to the ruach, Thus says the Lord God, come from the four ruach. Now, that's not the right ending, but it's four winds. Same idea, same word. Come from the four ruach, O ruach, and ruach as a verb, on these slain that they may live. It's all about the spirit being the breath. And you can't catch it in the English. It's just not there. But what he's saying is, I will breathe on these bones Make them live not just as flesh to be seen, but as actual, authentic, resurrected people. Now, we're going to go to this text in a moment. I'm not going to go all the way there. But in John, what did Jesus do when he showed up and said, peace be with you? Remember? It's really weird. As he breathed on them. That's right. Thank you. Who said it? Uh, he breathed on them. That's exactly right. Uh, so do you think he knew this text? Do you think he understood what was going on? Do you think his breath at that moment was something more than just, you know, a little, little stomach acid from the tomb? What was going on was he was giving to them exactly what he said, forgiveness of sins. And as he breathes and speaks at the same time, because you can't speak without breathing, he declares to them that they have the power to forgive each other and that it's eternal. 
He says to them, peace be with you, and that it's eternal. We'll come back to that here by the end of this. But the breath. So to understand that your human breath right now is your spirit. That, that's the way the Bible talks. You have a spirit, and it's fed by your breath. And when you die, it's gone. We know this. They stop breathing, they're dead, right? If their spirit has left them. And what God is saying, again here, is not only that your breath initially is his gift of life from the Holy Spirit to all creation. The Spirit hovered the waters, and he made us all creation, and he breathes into man so that we may live. It's not only that. That was broken. It's still here, but it's broken now. We're the enemies of God, and yet in Christ, he's going to put it back. He's going to put the breath back. Now, does that mean right now I breathe in oxygen and I'm getting Jesus? No. I breathe in oxygen and I get the creation God the Father made me to be a part of. I understand that he sustains me in it and that my breath is what he wants me to use to think and live with. It's how I, it's how I am. It's what I am. It's what you are. We are spirits in bodies, breaths in bodies. Yeah? So again, though, I try to bring it back to cap it. This breath and body thing that is here created, he prophesies once you die, isn't over. Ezekiel sees that whether you're in exile in Babylon or whether you're in some Gestapo state where they're actually arresting you and taking you away for not doing what they say, your body is going to rise from the dead on the last day, everlasting, glorified, purged of everything that could ever be wrong with it, and just kind of glad to live forever. So, so are your bones really dried up? Is your hope really lost? And Ezekiel says, no. Not if you know that he is risen. There you go. Hallelujah. I mentioned the gospel reading already. Uh, John and his, his gospel is so dense. I, I don't want to, I'm afraid to dig into this one because we could be here way too long. But I want to make sure we hit on this peace be with you part. Three times he says it. Three times he says, peace be with you. Uh, he's not messing around. And I think that word has been significantly diminished by our life today. So we hear Jesus saying, peace be with you. And it's kind of like, see Dick and Jane, right? So Dick goes up the hill. Jane brings the bucket. You maybe remember the children's story, right? Here's Jesus. See Jesus. He loves, love Jesus, love. Yay, Christianity. Jesus brings peace. Yay, Christianity. But it's all kind of platitude. Right? It's all sort of like, well, you ought to feel better even though you don't. And that's not what peace is. Certainly, you can have peace in your conscience. Certainly, you can have peace in your soul, but probably not forever. Right? But what you do have forever in Jesus is peace with God. This means that the God who is at war with the universe, killing us all because we are all evil, has declared peace with you. And he did it by breaking out of the grave as Jesus and said, I'm your king now. And I'm at peace with you, so stop killing me. <laughs> you can't again, right? And anyone who believes this is in. It's free. There's no payment. It's paid. Huh? There will be some who don't want to believe it. But peace is with you. And again, that peace will not be with the world. It will not be with those who do not believe. They will bring a sword against you, not necessarily physically, but the tongue and those flaming arrows of attack and shaming that happen all throughout the world. Our society is filled with sarcasm and criticism to just make you feel bad constantly. But you don't only have that. You have the knowledge that this world of tears and sorrow and hate 
has been declared at peace with God in Jesus and that he's going to burn it all, but everything in him has overcome that already. Now, I promised I'd use this to move on. He is risen. Hallelujah. So the bulk of our time is the first John chapter five text where he does talk about overcoming. Yes, overcoming. Let's, let's start there with chapter five, verse four. Everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. To understand this, you have to know at least two things. Uh, first one is, what does it mean to be born of God? I think I just established that you are. But we can just go there as a group, right? So you are in Jesus. He promises resurrection. You are born of God. We can assume that as a group. But let's take a step back and try to do it with a little more John worked in. Remember how Jesus in John chapter 3 goes to Nicodemus? Uh, excuse me, backwards. Nicodemus goes to Jesus late in the night. It's dark. He kind of wants to say, I think you know something, but I don't really trust you. And that whole conversation leads to Jesus saying that if a person is not born from above, sometimes translated as born again, but born from above and then born of water and the spirit, if someone is not born from God, then they have no life in them. And they have no hope in them, that there is nothing they can do. And this, to use the spirit language, if God doesn't breathe in you regeneration and a resurrected life, you won't get it. You will die and burn in hell without salvation. It is the path of all grass. And we are less than the grass born of Adam. We are traitors and rebels. But he's turned it all around. And he said that if you hear, he is risen. Alleluia. Then you're born of God. He just says it right down in the next couple of verses. That's the definition. Who is it that is born of God? Let me find it. Verse 5. Who overcomes the world? The one who's born of God. That is the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So right off the bat, overcoming means believing that Christ is the Son of God. This is like what I said last week about how Christianity is not an idea. It's not a theory about how you get saved or a philosophy about how to have a better spiritual life. It is a historical event of a king who made a claim on the universe and no one can rebuke him because we tried to kill him and he came back to life and he flew off to heaven to run everything. That claim is good news when he tells you, peace be with you. That claim is good news when he tells you, I did this so that I could save you from it. When he tells you, I want to be gentle, even though you do not. When he tells you that I want to give mercy, even though you want to keep bringing sacrifices. This is the God you have, and he's not going to stop. There are going to be movements throughout history where Christians come alongside his truth, and then they get satisfied, or they get rich, or they get who knows what. It's happened so many times where the word rises up and people believe it, and then... Generation comes, generation goes, and it trickles away, but it never trickles away forever. It only trickles away under the lies of those who say it's going to trickle away and those who believe those lies. But every single time in history, the Lord Jesus has not let his scriptures lie dead in the streets. He raises up men to speak them. And ladies, you know by now that includes you, right? He raises up men to speak these scriptures to the world. That doesn't mean just me, but preachers are always going to be at the heart. I speak, you hear, and eventually, God willing, you speak. And you're not going to speak like me. You're going to speak like you, where you are. You don't have to be the pastor of a church. You don't have to go be a missionary to anybody. You have a family. 
You have neighbors. Try just being kind. Try putting into practice some of the exhortations about gentleness. As you hear all the world saying, this is crazy, this is that, can you step back and just hold your tongue? It's hard. It's hard. But you might find a space to breathe and think and remind yourself that you're going to rise from the dead because you're immortal now. And then maybe, maybe be brave enough in that moment to actually say it aloud. Oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. I'm not worried about that. What? What are you talking about you're not worried about that? Oh, if I die, I'm just going to be with Jesus. It's all right. I'd go a long way, don't you think? I think it would. To believe that you have overcome the world. To actually believe it. This is the victory, our faith, that you would believe it. That you would believe that no matter what you see, no matter what comes, no matter what's taken, no matter what grows, You've already overcome the world because it is finished in what he has done. And to walk every step of your life in the certainty of that grace, in the certainty that God is for you and not against you, in the certainty that he wants to divorce you from your sin. That it's not about how you shouldn't just because I'm a poor guy, he doesn't like you to have any fun. It's because your sin is the source of your shame. And your shame is a pile of your fear. And when he unbuckles that from your heart, you at least can say, yeah, you're right. I'm a sad, angry sinner. And Jesus has risen. He showed me that. And he showed me that that resurrection means I won't always be this person. I will always be this person who believes, but not this person who carries that shame. That day will end. On the moment of resurrection, it will all come to pass in the twinkling of an eye. And the more you believe that's true, the more that faith exists in you, the more you have already overcome the world. Because whatever comes next, you can handle it. There's no crisis. There's never a crisis. Not a single one. You're getting shot. Not a crisis. Nope. You're just going to heaven. I mean, big deal, right? It's hard to believe that. Don't get me wrong. But it starts by us as a group gathering around it. And by you hearing someone say from the scriptures, it says that's you. It says that's you. Whatever is born of God overcomes the world. You're born of God. He is risen. Hallelujah. You're baptized into his holy name. I, we can go into detail on how that's a promise of your salvation. We'll do that another time. You're about to feast upon his flesh and blood. This is his resurrected body. So when I say that you're immortal, it's because he's immortal and you're going to be part of him. It's guaranteed. Like It can't not happen unless you lose the victory, which is the faith again. Unless you think something more than word and sacrament, something more than the scriptures and the baptism that Christ gives in the supper. If the church needs more than that to live, we're going to die. We will not overcome the world. What overcomes the world is the certainty we need nothing else but Christ. And that we can go on from age to age without building anything exacerbate or huge. We can just be the Christians who believe he's going to come back and who seek to love each other while we wait, which again is easier said than done. All right. So verse six shifts into a section that is poetic, I guess would be the best way to say it. It's going to involve water and blood and breath or spirit, as it says here. The Greek has the same problem with the word pneuma. It starts with a P, so I won't make you spell it right now, but pneuma, breath, wind, spirit. Huh? The section is going to focus on water, blood, and spirit. But to back up and see that this is a theme that has already been established in John's gospel is, is going to be helpful. So John's gospel does not mention baptism. And he does not mention on the night our Lord was betrayed, he took bread. He doesn't say those things. They're nowhere in it. I believe it does talk about how Jesus was baptizing some people. I believe it does say that. Um, but 
The point is, he has, he has like no focus on it. There's almost nothing you can learn from him about baptism and the Lord's Supper. But then, water and blood are everywhere in his book. In fact, he's even telling you have to, you have to drink his blood. He's like, you have to drink my blood. And they're like, no, we won't. You have to, or you'll go to hell. And they're like, you go away. He's that forward about drinking his blood, even though he never mentions the Lord's Supper in the book. Right? And then the water, that's, that's all over the place, from the woman at the well to, well, where does it all come together? At the cross, as he dies, the side is split open. You remember the water, water and the blood come flowing out by the side there? And John says, I, I was there, I saw it. So he cares about this water-blood idea from the side of Jesus. He cares about water and blood, so he strips it all the way through his gospel. And then, remember, at the cross where that water and blood spilled out, something else had just spilled out of Jesus. Right before he died, he cried out, it is finished. He heaved and gave a great yell, and his spirit left it. He gave up his spirit. So there you have water, blood, and spirit crying, even, as it were. So let's take that from the gospel and pull it kind of into this text. So when he says that this is he, Jesus, who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not only by water, but by water and blood, is he talking about just at the cross, how he saw his side spill open and blood and water pour out, and there, was, it was, there were two and not one? Is that really the focal point? Or is he saying there's something deeper about Christianity? And there's a testimony that you can see that the blood and water and spirit that came out of Jesus at the cross exist today. They're here in real time and space, calling to you as testimony, baptism, the Lord's Supper, and the Holy Scriptures. They're there. And what are they for? It is the spirit who bears witness, right? So the scriptures are a witness to you. And you can know that the Holy Spirit, by these scriptures, enters you. He goes in the ear, through the brain, and literally down into the heart and the spleen and all that too. He inhabits you. He possesses you to witness to you both what he knows, he is risen, and what you are to know because of that, which is that with confidence you may walk every step of this life. Again, he'll say that in just a moment. But three are these witnesses. Ah, Verse 8. You might notice, I'm not going to go into this too deep. Notice how there's no verse 7 if you got your Bible and it's not a King James. Anybody see that? Somebody? King James are going to see this. Yeah, there you go. Okay. So King James has an extra verse here. There's a few other places in the King James where this occurs. It shouldn't worry you too much. It probably, this extra verse, is not from the hand of John. It probably is from a couple hundred years in. Um, That's a long debate as to why and how. But what I can tell you is it doesn't change anything. All it does is tell you what we believe anyway about the Trinity. So either there's an extra verse here about the Trinity or there's not. I don't think it's really here in in this text. So um, I'm not going to focus on that verse 7. But verse 8, talking about the water, the blood, and the spirit that most definitely are sent by the Trinitarian God in the name of Jesus to help you know you're in him. Talking about that, that there are three that bear witness on the earth, the spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree as one. What this means is that the life of the Christian who has been baptized, who knows the Sabbath meal of rest in the Lord's Supper, and who hungers to hear the scriptures tell the story of Jesus, has overcome the world. You've overcome the world. There's nothing more to do. There's nothing more to add. You can go home this afternoon. don't even have to cook dinner. You can just sit there. You'll get hungry. You'll probably cook dinner. But you don't have to. You don't have to. There's nothing you have to do. 
You've overcome the world. And verse 9 is like, if you're going to let men tell you stuff, if you're going to let people say this and that, it's true, you should believe it. Well, then when God says you've overcome the world, would you believe him? Think you could do that? If you're going to receive the testimony of man about all manner of boogeyman, then believe God when he says you've overcome the world because you're in Christ Jesus now. Take it to the bank. For this is the witness of God which he has testified of his son. I want that. This is real important here. Verse 9. So if we receive the witness of man, God's witness is greater. And this is the witness of God which he has testified concerning his son, that he who believes in the son has the witness. You who believe in the son have the witness. Here that is the Holy Spirit again. The witness is not what you're going to do. The witness is not something you do when you talk about Jesus. The witness is the Holy Spirit inhabiting you to make you believe in Jesus. He tells you it's true when I speak it. I say, he is risen, and you go, hallelujah, <laughs> because the Spirit is within inside you, inside you, and he knows he makes you want to hear more of this, yeah? So the witness that God has given concerning his Son is that the text and words about him cannot help but inhabit, save, and raise you from the dead on the last day. And that in itself is something you can know, remember, and tell yourself as a way to constantly overcome the world. Does that mean you'll never have a moment of fear? No. It's the moments of fear that are the times to practice remembering these things. He who has, believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. The next line, he does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed the testimony that God has given of his son. So, hell, right? Uh, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on the idea, particularly because he's not really saying fire and brimstone here. But what he is saying is that anybody who does not acknowledge, upon hearing, that they at least would like to know more about this Christ who has risen from the dead, anybody who instead says no, they are a liar. They're a born liar. They've always been a liar, and now they have no hope of ever being a real truth teller. That doesn't mean they can't tell the truth 99% of the time, but they'll do it only for the sake of the lie they're going to tell later. That is the promise of humanity. And so when you see governments and organizations and companies not telling the truth about things they're doing in order to use you for their benefit, well, don't be surprised. You know what planet you live on. Do you really believe that the 40s changed everything, made all the bad go away? Our government beat the Nazis, and so we're all good no matter what forever. It's just not going to be that way. I don't know what's going to come. Again, there's so many stories I've given up trying to figure it out. I'm going to know what I can see and smell and touch and taste. I'm going to trust that. And thank God, again, the Lord's Supper, I can see and smell and touch and taste. And with that, by the way, that would include this community here, right? Like We got, we got 22 people listening online right now. Sermons from this go out to 400 to 800 people a week. We're helping people elsewhere. But all of that is ancillary. It's secondary to us being together in this space. If you don't believe that the devil wanted to use COVID, whatever else it might mean, use COVID to shut down as many congregations in America as he could, then you haven't been watching because that's what happened. And that's what's happening. You have overcome the world. And when you let the world tell you not to come and receive the body and blood of Jesus, you are letting the world tell you how to live. Does that mean that you won't be saved? No, it just means you're going to be more afraid. It just means you're going to be less confident. That means you'll probably also be ruder to other people, a little more cantankerous, ornery, all that kind of stuff. And we are here in this space to receive you. 
We are here to be those people who know that every week we forget too much, who know that the overcoming of the world has been lost on our hearts and we give it up. But that's again why to see the water and the blood testify to you again, to hear me remind you of your identity in convicted terms, right? Certain terms, once again. That is the pathway God has given to walk you right through this valley of the shadow of death, all the way into the resurrection, without having to worry about anything more than today. Today is enough. Tomorrow's enough. It's good enough. You've overcome the world. The text goes on, and I want to give you uh, three more verses here. You can't see them in your bulletin. It says, verse 12, He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. Verse 13, here's the one I want. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. I'm just going to read that again. So good. These things I have written to you, you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that's Jesus Christ, so that you may know that you have eternal life so that you may know that you are immortal now, and so that you may continue to believe in the Son of God. Verse 14, this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, and we know that we have the petitions we have asked of him. Prayer is another topic. What happens when you pray and you don't get what you want? God said yes to a better prayer is what he did. He realized you were praying backwards and he gave you the one you needed. The promise there at the end, again, is there is nothing between you and the Father now. Jesus, I mean. Yeah. And he's your king to listen to you at all times of need. He wants you to declare to him your concerns. He wants to know, he wants you to know that he will send you answers in this life. However, they will be contingent upon his saving of you from this life. That is, he's not going to give you the thing you think you want, if it's going to send you to hell. He's going to say no. He's going to do it over and over again, and there's an hallelujah in that. And so you should not pray, do not pray as one who is expecting everything to be given to you just because you prayed it. However, as a congregation, as a group, we absolutely must pray, certain that he will answer everything he has declared he will do. Like give us children and families and teach us how to live together and raise them. How to be in generations that do not lose our faith, but pass it forward because we like living a better way than the rest of the world. He has promised that. And if the American churches have lost that, it's because they've been losing it for 50 years. And we've been saying we're losing it, we're losing it, we're losing it. And now it's showing. St. Paul, you don't have anything to fear about any of this. You are the most simple, healthy family church I have ever been a party to. Ah, uh, I went to a little one in California before I was really a Christian or came back to the faith. And it was, it was pretty good. They wanted me there. They wanted me there, not as a preacher, as a person. You're that kind of place right now, St. Paul. You want people here and you don't want them just to be here and grow the ranks. And that's beautiful. You want them to hear what you're hearing. You want them to believe what you're believing. You want them to say, he is risen. Hallelujah. So take all of these texts with you today and summarize them in that word, that you have overcome the world. This overcoming is what Jesus has already done. He's adopted you as his heir, 
And he intends to feed you into constant greater understanding and peace with this, knowing that the peace is not with this world, uh, but that the Christians here, we're all work, walking together toward, toward a better one. In the name of Jesus, amen.